Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? I am stumbling, tripping, getting to the end of the year. I, I feel like the... I think I already complained about this, but this whole Christmas on Sunday thing is a mess because now like we're going too long at the end of the year and then we'll come Mm. back too late in the new year. But (laughs) here we are about on our way out of the content mines for for 2022. We made it to the Sharp Tech holiday party. I didn't have any time to find like sleigh bells, uh, perfect sound effects. Maybe Jim can add those in post-production. But what's important is that we're here. This is the final item for both of us. For some reason, we decided to do a two-part episode that's going to mean two hours of podcasting. I've never done that before. Uh, Really have no idea how this will go, but I'm excited. A special present for our Sharp Tech subscribers to help tide them over the Christmas week. Professional podcaster Ben Thompson. What a segue from presents to this question from Dumbin. He says, what non-tech gift would Ben recommend for the holidays? And what tech gift would Andrew recommend? So I think you should. I think you should go first. Okay. Um, so the tech side of this, if there's no budget whatsoever, I'm going to zag a bit from previous takes. Uh, I cannot recommend the AirPods Max enough, and <laughs> it's a great Christmas gift because look. The, the, Almost you anybody. You anti AirPods, and yet owning and loving AirPods Max remains hilarious. I'm I'm not at risk of losing the AirPods Max, so I'm comfortable in that respect. Um, but I look at the AirPods Max; they're so comfortable, and the sound is great. The noise canceling works better than any noise canceling I've ever experienced. And the reason it's a great gift is because nobody is going to go out and buy themselves like $500 headphones uh, just because you kind of feel like an idiot. I bought them on credit card points to make myself feel less guilty. Uh, But if you give them to somebody, they will end up becoming like the favorite piece of tech in that person's life. So that would be choice number one if money is no object. Just a note, for the price of AirPods Max, you could buy multiple AirPods, potentially addressing the losing them this year. That's true. Have some backups. Yeah. Um, well, if we're talking less expensive, I would sound like a corporate shill if I plugged a Stratechery Plus subscription <laughs> and said the link to buy gifts is still in your show notes. So I'm not going to say that. Um Absent a Stratechery subscription, I can't tell whether this will seem too obvious for our audience and whether everybody uses this app, but I would buy someone a subscription to 1Password, which you introduced me to and which has turned into my single favorite app in any category. It saves all your passwords, makes it extremely easy to queue them up, sign into whatever website you're looking to read and it generates passwords when you sign up for stuff. It's just terrific. And I think a lot of normies in your life may not be aware that one password exists. So if you're like looking for an easy gift for your parents, a $4.99 a month subscription, family subscription to one password is not a bad idea. No, I suggest the family subscription because your parents will mess up and lose stuff. And that way you yep. have access to all their stuff. That's the real, that's, that's the real win. Uh, yeah, no, the, uh, good recommendations, Andrew. I'm, I'm proud of you. Um, the reason why I wanted you to go first is because the single greatest gift that you can give those around you mm. is convincing everyone around you to stop giving gifts. That, that's, that's my take. The obligatory gift giving on Christmas, great for kids. They can look forward to it. But, you know, what gifts really resonate with you? The ones that are sort of surprises throughout the year when you're not expecting it, something along those lines, that's a meaningful gift. The everyone dreads and gets annoyed by and is frustrated about the gift for Christmas. This is go a couple of ways. So the first way it goes, this is how it goes in my family, which is mm. everyone gives these super specific requests because they're basically using Christmas as a, <laughs> as an alternative buying arrangement for things that they want. And yeah. you can't actually buy something that's not on the list because then they're going to be annoyed because they wanted that. So you have to go – it's literally just like a, a money transfer. 
It's like we could all just buy ourselves what we wanted at the time we wanted it, or we can mm. wait a few months so that someone else will buy it and they better buy the right thing or I'm going to be mad about it. Uh, it's a great take. Okay. Thank I've, you. Thank I've you. run into this problem year after year with my siblings. They'll like text me, what do you want for Christmas? And I feel like kind of an idiot giving them like stuff that I could buy myself and should buy myself. I don't necessarily need them to buy it for me. And it, it also, it sort of removes the spontaneity from the gift giving process, but there's no better solution for adults. It gets worse though. If there's not a specific about what you want, because then you're really on the hook. It's like, you have to figure out something that is good and meaningful and worth it or whatever. And if you don't, then you get like the cold shoulder, they're mad at you or worse. Like it just turns into a big, just a, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. I'm <laughs> banned gift giving. If you have to give a gift, uh, I am a big believe, like in general, you want to buy someone something they will not buy themselves. I think mm-hmm. for, a you know, for adults, if they indulge a nice bottle of wine or whiskey or, you know, chocolate something along those lines where they're going to feel vaguely guilty and somewhat mad at you but they're mad at you not because they don't enjoy it but because they feel guilty that like you yeah. want guilt inspired anger you don't guilty want pleasure like, sure that's right that's right so lean into the guilt uh is is, is my take if you can't avoid the inherent guilt in modern gift giving. <laughs> well, no, I really appreciate that perspective because I am headed up to have Christmas with my wife's family, and I haven't been able to do much Christmas shopping this year. And I also feel like we're all older and don't necessarily need to be getting gifts for each other. Right. But the great thing about being an adult is you want something and you can go buy it. Like that's yeah. It's a much, it's the, a much better system. The one exception that I almost made this afternoon was a Giannis t shirt. You know how Nike has those giant freak t shirts where freak is in like seventy two point font. I, I I own a couple of them and look like a moron every time I wear them, but I do love them. So that's what I ran into. I wanted to buy my brother in law something Giannis related, but then I thought, you know, this is something he's going to feel like an absolute moron anytime he puts it on. No, so that's, so that's a great gift. No, so basically, if you give gifts to adults, you want to lean into absurdity and guilt. Like, that's your mm. go-to thing. So, yes, give him a T-shirt he's going to look like a moron wearing. <laughs> that's exactly the, the right sort of thing to do. There you go. He could spend his own money on stuff that he looks good in. Um, exactly. All right. Exactly. We did have Not a your bit responsibility. of news. That's right. Not exactly. That's the thing. We're all adults here. It's different with kids. We're getting a lot of stuff for the kids. Going to have a lot of fun. Um, for now, though, we had news on the way into our holiday party. So I'll read from John Orend, a longtime Wiz fan, a brother in arms at Sports Business Journal. He writes, Google's YouTube has emerged as the likely new home of the NFL's out-of-market Sunday ticket package, with a formal announcement potentially coming as soon as today. Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal was first with the story last night, and Google will pay $2.5 billion per year for the rights to the package, plus, quote, additional payments based on the number of YouTube subscribers that Google is able to add, according to the New York Times. That is a significant increase from the $1.5 billion that DirecTV currently pays and is in line with the figure that the league has targeted for years. The NFL would not comment on this report. So, Ben, broadly speaking, what's your reaction to this news? What's most interesting to you? There's a, I have, I, there's a few takes for this. Number one, I think it's just a, a massive win for the NFL. Uh, you know, one of the challenges they had with Sunday Ticket is it's a package that they want to sell nationally. And DirecTV was a, a good partner in that it's like a national video service, right? Like you mm-hmm. only have to deal with one thing. You don't have to deal with multiple cable companies and like all those sort of like rigmarole that could get into that. And, and DirecTV was a clear win for them because if you really care about the NFL, like the problem with satellite TV is you have to you have to get a freaking satellite, right? Big bait yeah. in the rear end. It entails a big commitment because obviously you need a contract in that case. They're coming to give you expensive equipment, wire it up, all that sort of thing. And so that was a a match that made a lot of sense uh, up until getting satellites and DirecTV suddenly flipped into being just totally obsolete technology, basically because the internet came along. And so you have this emergence of virtual MVPDs, like like multi, uh, multi-video provider or whatever it is. Like basically the YouTube <laughs> TVs of the world, Hulu TV, those sorts of things have come along. And 
one of the what we've talked about this in the past in the context of regional sports networks, where because YouTube TV isn't carrying this like all this infrastructure costs and this sort of you know expectation that they have local sports, they've been able to not carry local sports and basically say, hey, if you really care about getting your local sports team on TV, YouTube TV is not the right choice for you, and that's yep. okay because their their like their their market definition is just different and. That's been a massive problem for RSNs because they have lost way more customers than just like an ESPN has, which has also lost a lot of customers, but that's been a broad-based decline. And this has really screwed with the NBA's finances and MLB's finances in particular because these teams get a lot of revenue from their local regional sports network. Now, this does get into one of our sort of pet complaints about how short-sighted the NBA is about their business. Mm -hmm. Who sponsors the NBA Finals? YouTube TV. YouTube TV, and they yeah. run commercials the whole time about how much cheaper their packages are. Again, they're much more expensive than they used to be, but they're still cheaper than cable, it, 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 both because of fees and also because of the regional sports network issue. And the NBA is up there getting money from a company that is killing a core piece of their finances. It, it's crazy. It's, it's it's insane that they do this. It's like moving a team away from Seattle to a much smaller market just because it has a marginally <laughs> better stadium. It's nuts. They integrated YouTube TV branding into the finals logo, which is an outrage. Yeah, My gift is, really a, is a return, a return to the original <laughs> NBA finals logo. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, so my reaction is twofold. Um, first of all, Amazon adding Thursday night football. I think a lot has been made of how successful it's been. It sounds like Amazon's really happy with the numbers, but I don't look at, Thursday night football rights as a as a you know an indication of what customers are actually going to choose but being able to purchase Sunday ticket on YouTube TV and only YouTube TV is going well, to no, make it's, a it's not just only YouTube TV so I okay. let me uh, wrap unwrap this a little bit more so when I first saw this news I I also assumed it would be just on YouTube TV and I was like this is a red flag major problem for the NBA and MLB because the hardcore sports fans are going to cancel their that want NBA Sunday, Sunday ticket. If you're, if you have to get YouTube TV, you might as well cancel your cable subscription. Right. And, and, and so that like just real, really bad news. It turns out that this is also going to be available uh, on YouTube itself. So YouTube just launched this thing called primetime subscriptions, uh, primetime, something or other, uh, where basically they are selling subscription content on YouTube itself. And so mm-hmm. Week Pass has joined this. It's mostly smaller companies, smaller streaming services. Now, there's similar things like Amazon has Amazon channels where that you can subscribe to HBO on Amazon. D- Apple has the same thing. You can subscribe to Disney Plus on on Apple TV. YouTube Primetime Channels is similar in that you can subscribe to whatever's on there. What's interesting about it is it's fully inside of YouTube. Like the videos just show up the same as any other sort of video. And so mm-hmm. you're also going to be able to get Sunday ticket within YouTube itself. Now, this is where I think the NBA has to be breathing a sigh of relief because your hardcore sports fan can continue getting local cable, including RSNs, and they can then subscribe to the NFL Sunday ticket if they want via YouTube, which is obviously widely available. It's, it's you know, it's on your smart TV. It's on your Apple TV. It's on, on whatever your, your fire stick or Roku or whatever it might be. And so they can still sort of have it all. But mm-hmm. from from Google's perspective, I agree with you. It makes a lot of sense to push both services. And are they going to make are they going to make their two point five billion dollars back? I'm not sure. This gets to some of the points we talked about a little bit ago, where sometimes it's worth investing in one part of the business to to pull up the whole thing. Um, and from the NFL perspective, again, they it's adding a new partner uh, beyond Amazon. It's adding a nationwide sort of approach, which, you know, fits with their sort of modus operandi, and it's going to be available and accessible to way more people than something on satellite ever was. So, I mean, I I think the NFL is the biggest winner for sure. Uh, I think the NBA and RSNs are losers, but the loss isn't as large as I thought it was going to be originally, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I I think the issue is YouTube TV is a really compelling product. And if I were a league that was dependent on cable or a cable company, I would not want more people to find out what a great deal it is for consumers. 
And this Sunday ticket, like that's meaningful. Like it's going to pique people's interests and get them to check it out. And even if they're not signing up for YouTube TV whole hog initially, uh, I do think this is just going to draw more eyeballs to what YouTube TV is doing. And if you do sign up, you're like, wow, okay, so this is a lot more affordable than the cable bill I've been paying for the last 20 years or so. And that epiphany, I think, is going to become more and more common as more people find out what's happening here. Yeah, I think just in general, you get a better interface. You like the DVR functionality is better. You get a much better sort of out of home experience, you know, because using the YouTube TV app and whatever the um, I mean, it's interesting because the price has gone up a lot on this stuff. It's not like the you know, they started out like thirty five dollars or forty dollars. And now they're, you know, every you know, no more of those sweetheart deals from anyone else. Uh, So there it's still, you know, it's still pretty expensive, but it's still less expensive than cable. That, That that's a real thing. You know, the the real answer is uh, to get cable and get channels, which I use, and then you get the, <laughs> all the nice interface and DVR and you get access from anywhere. But that's the very, very nerdy solution. I think that there's a lot of value to – yeah, I think YouTube, if you don't need the local sports channels, it's pretty compelling. I agree. Okay, so two final thoughts. Barron's had an article this afternoon that said if YouTube offers the service at $300, it would need about 8.3 million subscribers to break even or more than four times the current Sunday ticket subscriber base. In July, Alphabet said there were more than 5 million subscribers to YouTube TV. So you would need to sign up all of those people and then some to reach a break even point with this investment. I'm sure that's not what they're worried about right now. They're looking to draw people in as subscribers more generally. Um, but it is that was my first thought as I like processed this news. It's like, all right, so how much money is YouTube TV losing up yeah. front here? And we have no idea. Well, the, the, again, the, this primetime channels thing, I think, is like I do think they'll get more subscribers than DirecTV ever did. Again, just because like the the, the hassle of getting a satellite, yes. If you're in a big city, you could get a, like you could get it actually over the wire because you can install satellite X Y Z. But by and large, it's going to be I think much more accessible. And again, everyone has YouTube, so everyone already has the app necessary to get access to this. I'm not totally sure. I don't think the details will come out. Like, it, will this include like past games and all that sort of thing? I mean, like when you're looking up, you know, the NFL also sells sells a distinct package through their app, like where you get mm-hmm. all this past footage and things along those lines. But you think about you search for a play uh, on YouTube and that clip might be out there. And also you can actually watch the entire game. Just it's right there. The yeah. Quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is I would love to, you know, uh, the league pass is on YouTube primetime channels. Also, I actually I, I, I should have looked into this before this call, but I, I would love to see a similar thing there. I mean, old NBA games mm-hmm. on YouTube is like this treasure trove of amazing stuff and having that sort of consistently be available is really compelling. What is interesting, I think there's a broader point, though, about the primetime channels bit. I mentioned the big players aren't on there. You can understand why. If it's just a Netflix video or a, or a Disney Plus thing is just on YouTube, it's like the exact same as like the my home video, right? As far as mm-hmm. the user experience goes, it's just mixed in the algorithm. And we saw with Facebook and feed, these feeds, how devaluing that is for sort of premium content where, you know, the picture of my dog is next to a deeply investigated report from, you know, a newspaper or whatever it might be. And so that's not good, but you do have this dynamic where these streaming services are losing a lot of money and YouTube is this massive distribution channel that is like a great way to acquire customers and streaming services are going to be increasingly incentivized to give up the family jewels, as it were, when it comes Mm -hmm. to owning the customer experience because they need distribution and they need to reduce churn. And so six years ago, Netflix could look at Apple. Apple tried to do this Apple TV app thing where all your content would be in one place. And they're like, no, we're out. We want to own the customer experience. Today, when they're not growing nearly as well, suddenly that seems sort of more, more compelling. You know, you have all these offers like these files providers. They're increasingly not even bothering to deliver TV. They're saying we'll package this with the YouTube TV subscription, right? Like like a friend yeah. of mine just built a new house and like that's 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 the offer. Well, and and the cord cutting has accelerated, correct? Yeah, and I thought it would slow down after the pandemic. Uh it, yeah. you know, but it has accelerated. I do still think there's going to be a floor. Like I think I predicted a few years ago back when it was like 120 million households that it would end up at like 50 or or 60 
and mm-hmm. which is just basically a hard you know live news uh, and sports. Uh, it's <laughs> it's approaching that line very quickly. Uh, so <laughs> we will we will see we'll see what happens there. But um, but this bit about you know again, all the big players are not on primetime channels yet. It just launched, and so. Yeah. That's why Google is willing to overpay for stuff like this because it's making this channel into a real thing. And the way to make money is not on Sunday ticket subscriptions. It's on all the subscriptions over time that you're taking 30% from or whatever it might be. It's actually similar to the NFL for networks as a whole. Networks generally lose money in the NFL, but it's worth so much because so many people watch the NFL, they can promo all the other stuff that's that's in their mm. networks, right? And so that owned and operated advertising that they're basically getting for free uh, along with their, you know, within the game, you know, you have the announcers, oh, coming up this week, XYZ, or 60 minutes after the game, blah, yeah. blah, blah. That's where they actually make, have traditionally made a big portion of their money. And I think you can think about you, you know, Google paying for this in the same, the same sort of light. Well, we'll see. I, I have not watched a single NFL game this year, but 25 years ago, I remember as like a seventh grader, begging my parents to get direct TV because all I wanted was Sunday ticket. So for people who do love football, Sunday ticket is a really big deal. Um, so that got my attention and shout out to the NFL extracting an extra billion dollars from uh, the Sunday ticket owner here. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing was like, Apple was supposedly going to get this, but they wanted to just like package it in or they wanted to have like, they didn't want any blackout rules or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the NFL versus Apple, you know, when it was going on, it's like, well, immovable objects versus unstoppable force. Um, yeah. The NFL is is more hardcore than Apple, I think. Like, is, well, is, is look, the take they're right not here. only getting an extra billion dollars out of this deal. They're also apparently going to get additional payments based on the number of YouTube subscribers. Right. So if YouTube actually starts making money on this deal, the NFL is going to make money. money that's as that's well. what's crazy is they're losing money, but it doesn't matter because no, the it NFL goes to is show still going to take their cut. The the having the best content is still sort of a dominant strategy. Like, like it, it's yeah. the most difficult strategy. Because, you know, to to produce great content, like owning distribution is a better way, is a more consistent way to make money. But the outsize gains still go to the best content. If you can go direct, right? Or you can be so compelling that you can pull pull the end user base in a way that the, mm-hmm. the folks that control the interface have to respond. And the NFL, there's no better example than than, than that. Yep. They've got it down to a science as far as the television product. Um, To keep it moving, Dan says, hey, guys, I liked hearing Ben's reflections on his time at Automatic and their thoughtful approach to remote work. So I'm curious, Ben, do you think more companies should crib the Automatic model? And if so, why haven't they? Is it merely inertia or is there some more profound constraint like a dearth of talent who can or want to work that way? I'd also love to hear any guesses you guys have about where the remote work equilibrium will end up on a spectrum from, quote, remote work is the default in tech to, quote, remote work is the exception. I try to get a pulse for these things on tech Twitter, but it seems polarized. Surprise, surprise. On the one hand, Elon and VCs talk about remote work in the same apocalyptic tones that European royals reserved for the French Revolution. On the other hand, millennial tech managers with young kids seem into this model. Um, And that's actually a really interesting point at the end there. I think people imagine like a huge schism between management and entry level employees. But what Dan's describing is probably uh, the more common reality where you've got older executives with kids in high school who are like, get back to the office and you've got like middle management with young kids at home and they're sitting there like, well, I don't know. It's working pretty well exactly the way we're doing it. Uh, But what are your general thoughts here? My suspicion, I can't remember if we said this on the last podcast, but I think if you're a startup pre product market fit, pre sort of major growth, there's a lot of benefits to being in the same place, right? Like the, the, one of the challenges with processes and doing things in a certain way, all of which are essential to working as- asynchronous, like the what makes automatic, I think, unique is that it's all asynchronous, right? There was no expectation except for like once a week that everyone be online at the same time. But 
before that, there's a lot of value in not having processes and not having stuff right now because you haven't figured it out. You're still trying to figure out yeah. what this company is. You're trying to figure out how to grow. There's a million fires to put out. There's things that are very difficult. And so while there are examples of startups that are remote from the beginning, again, as I mentioned last week, everyone talks about GitLab because there's not that many. I mm. do think that for new companies – being in the same place is super valuable and is going to be the default way going forward. Now, once you have product market fit, once you have a working business model, once it's more keeping the train going and you actually don't want big diversions, you don't want to be all over the place, you just want stuff to keep going as it's going, then remote work makes a lot of sense because you should be having a lot of processes. You should be having a lot of like, uh, you know, backups, you should have worldwide coverage of sort of these sorts of issues. And so, and, and so what I suspect will happen is lots of new early companies will still primarily be in person and then more established companies and parts of that business that are more about sort of like keeping the trains running that will lend itself well to remote work. And, mm. uh, and so th there'll be some transition point where you it'll almost be a marker. You can look at a startup, right? It's like, you know, the, it's always been tough to say, what is a company transition from being a startup to being an established company? And traditionally it's been when they IPO, but the reality is, is companies wait so long to IPO. It's like, you're not really a startup anymore, right? You have thousands <laughs> of employees or whatever it might be, but maybe once they start supporting remote work, that's like, okay, you're now, you're now a company, right? Like, or you're, yeah, a, you have, you have the processes in place to allow for this sort of thing. And I, so it's not a talent thing. Clearly talent would like to be remote. One, I mean, one thing that Matt always said about automatic was they didn't save any money with remote work because they were supporting all these trips around the world and all these get togethers. Mm -hmm. Like that was very pricey. The benefit they saw was access to much more talent. Like they could yeah. get the programmer who needed, who wanted to be home with his family in Tennessee or whatever. Right. And, and was not going to have a, a similar level of job. I could live in Taiwan with like a, you know, a, an American salary and, you know, live abroad like I had wanted to do and found a job that could do that. And, and so they had access. Now, I think this is bad for automatic in some respects because they have much more competition. But I think mm -hmm. that competition will be mostly these sorts of companies. I think if you're remote and you want to work for a VC-funded startup, that's, I think, going to be and continue to be pretty rare. And I think that's a completely fair expectation from the startup side and, and sort of the VC side. Yeah, well, you mentioned those early days where you're figuring things out and sort of workshopping various ideas. It's just so much easier to do that in person, in part because I was thinking about this the other day. You know, obviously, ideas sort of build on one another and everybody sort of brainstorms together. Uh, but it's also easier to tell somebody that their idea is bad when you're in person and you can sort of do it warmly. <laughs> like if you're setting that in Slack or an email or whatever, it can sort of rub people the wrong way, ruffle some feathers, but it's just easier to communicate when you've got like verbal and physical cues to let people know that you don't think they're stupid. You just think their idea is stupid. Uh, no bad ideas in a brainstorm. That was a famous Grantland saying. So um, the startup aspect of what you're describing there makes sense. And I also think that, remote work is going to be a carrot that people dangle to recruit the best talent in all sorts of different industries. Now, my now, question well, just, is... Just to, just to go back to your point, though, I think there's a speed and stability trade-off, right? Uh, when you're a startup, you need speed. When you're an established mm -hmm. company, you need stability and stuff to not get screwed up. And I think that, that like being in person lends itself to speed and there's some aspect to having someone that's just consistently there. And yeah, they have, they have a life, they have kids that, you know, they have to go coach little league in the afternoon, but that's okay. We don't need speed from them. We need stability and consistency. And like, there's an aspect, I mean, where having the solid, you know, you know, family person is the exact sort of person you want to sort of keep the trains running. Right. Whereas the, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have the, the, the person that is just completely pushing it, like staying up all night, like living like a moron, like startup by all means, you know, go for it. And then there's, and there's, there's this transition that all companies go through. And I, I, I think this is just a physical manifestation of what happens with all companies anyway.
Yeah, well, the millennial tech managers, they'll keep a steady hand on the wheel and make sure the, the company gets where it needs to go. I mean, that'd go. be a welcome change of face to the impact of millennials. That's all I have to say. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started on the Gen X millennial rivalry between <laughs> Ben and I. God damn it. Um, I, so to frame this, though, the New York Times uh, last weekend, I believe, had a story about downtown San Francisco. They write, today, San Francisco has what is perhaps the most deserted major downtown in America. On any given week, office buildings are at about 40% occupancy, while the vacancy rate has jumped to 24% from 5% in 2019. Um, What I find interesting about this is, obviously, the easiest answer is going to be a hybrid arrangement would be great for everybody. I disagree. Really? On what basis? I think a, a hybrid arrangement is the worst of the worst of all worlds. You don't get so you, from an employee benefit, you don't get a whiff where you want, right? Like a, a lot of employees, or at least I suspect, maybe I'm self projecting, would rather live in the Midwest, Great would point. rather live yep. in the South, or rather live somewhere else. So they have to still live in this super expensive sort of environment that mostly. Sucks. Sorry, San Francisco. Right. And so so you have to still live there. And by the way, your home office is probably crappy because you can't afford a big house with sort of your own. And by the way, it it starts to really suck once you're in your 30s and start having kids and you look around and you're like, all right, we have no space and everything is like 10 times more expensive. When you said the the, uh, the executives, they want to go back to the office. It's because they want to get away from their house. Um, But, you know, I guess you get to that point later. But uh, no, so the uh, the so. And then you still have to go to the office and everyone is in the office resenting it while they're there. So everyone's grumpy Mm. about it. I think you should pick one or the other. Either be in the office and maybe you can have a relative like one day a week or really last days go, you know, sort of policy or be remote. Right. And then if you're remote, then you actually if, if you actually develop. The things we talk about with automatic, you actually develop processes and practices that make you efficient remotely. You actually learn how to measure employee performance so you know when people are slacking off. You actually establish communication so everyone's always up to speed and knows what's going on without depending on hearing stuff around the water cooler. The other thing with having a hybrid arrangement is what happens is everyone who wants to advance in the company ends up realizing they need to be in the office because that's where the, the, the boss is always in the office. Like that's where stuff happens. That's how you you hear about all things that are going on. And so you have mm-hmm. this self-selection where the, you know, everyone starts to feel like the people that are not in the office are probably slackers or maybe they're looking for something else or whatever it might be, which might not be true. There might be people who have a genuine reason to not be in the office, but then they get lumped in with the people who, who don't want it hard enough, who aren't hustling. I think hybrid is a, is, is a bad idea. And it, it's mostly, you know, I think management that really wants them to be in the office, giving a sop to employees because they're yeah. worried about their employees being mad, but you actually end up in an even worse situation. What a take. You explained it better than I could have. And for me, it's just sort of a gut feeling that hybrid, well, when you're sitting at a dinner table and discussing like the future of work in this country, a lot of people are going to say, well, I think we'll net out with some sort of hybrid arrangement. And I just have a feeling that we're going to have to make a call somewhere along the way where or a lot of companies are going to have to make a call where you're either in office or you're remote and you'll have to weigh a lot of different factors as you make that decision. But in general, he's asking for a guess at what the equilibrium will look like on a society-wide basis, my guess is that getting people back in the office is going to have too many benefits to companies. And then it also has like social benefits for employees, economic benefits for cities. And and ultimately that's where we'll end up would be my guess, but who knows? And I, I certainly hear the argument that, look, you can maintain a really successful network of people around the country and retain more talent that way. But yeah, we'll it, what I, I think you, you see it vary by division, right? So take Meta, for example. There's aspects of Meta 
that could be fully remote. If you're working on the VR headset, you should be in the office, right? Like there, mm. I wonder how much of John Carmack's complaints about the poor performance and efficiency of Meta's VR bit is tied to COVID and people being remote. Not a great, I don't think that's great for working on hardware, for working on something you should be iterating on, that sh- there should be no closed doors on what you do. You should be exploring sort of the, the space. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just sort of like, just an example that 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 popped in my head. And let's be honest, this is going to make a lot of people mad, but hey, I'm on a roll today, so I might as well. There's <laughs> Look, a lot of- you came of... out as anti-gifts on our yeah. Christmas episodes. So. <laughs> Except for Zachary Plus. Uh, there's a lot of self-serving arguments here. The, like, the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people that want to work at home, and so they are searching for and grasping onto any argument that supports their, the position mm-hmm. that, that, that they can work at home. And I think what's going to be interesting is this COVID- pandemic era happened in the where the bubble like to i don't think there was a bubble in tech for a long time but then there was a covid bubble right where there's all this stuff just expanded these companies were hiring like crazy like facebook by laying off eleven thousand people only went backwards in time like six months right if they wanted to go back to pre-pandemic levels they would have needed to lay off like forty thousand people right and so you have this crazy talent sort of acquisition where talent could call the shots now, when we're in a different environment, I do think that, you know, that's there is going to probably be a shakeout in that regard. But to your point, I think it would be a mistake to go one way or the other. I think there is a lot of talent out there that makes sense for roles and positions and jobs that, you know, the sort of person that wants to go live in San Francisco and go on an adventure is probably not the person you want necessarily keeping your servers up 24 seven, right? Like there's like, there's almost yeah. like a, a, a mentality difference that goes into that as well. Whereas those like, I just want to live close to my family in Kansas city, probably a great person, right? <laughs> I'm doing, doing keep your infrastructure <laughs> up. I mean, not to like stereotype too broadly, but I do think there is some aspect of like, are you a more conscientious person? Are you a more sort of open-minded experimental person that probably ties into different roles and companies that are smart will, I think, leverage that uh, to take advantage of it. But the other thing I would say is employees should be careful about getting what they want, because once you go remote, once you have the processes to do that, sure, it's yeah. not going to be bound by national borders. Like, and, and you're, it's like people who, you know, at newspapers saying, wow, if we get all our content online, everyone can access it. We'll reach way more customers. Well, you will reach more customers and everyone else will reach more customers too at the same time. And you're going to get a lot more competition and that's going to, that might not turn out the way you want it to. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is there are a lot of secondary and tertiary considerations. I think it's probably easier to develop younger talent when you're all in an office together. Yeah, that's a great point. I think for young people, this whole remote thing is, I mean, again, I'm, we're getting to the point, like, I, as you noted, I'm probably Gen X, like, so I'm <laughs> far away from these people. And so I can sit here and have all my group chats and be super connected and know lots of folks. If if I were to start, if you were trying to start in an industry, man, it, it sounds really, really hard. And, and I, uh, you know, I, I would exactly. not want to be a new employee going to work for a remote company that sounds tough and young people may want to be at home but i think it's healthy for young people to be around other humans and forced to socialize in person i think we've talked about that a lot like getting out of your own little space is generally a good thing um so uh not to prescribe things from on high here on mount take because i'm going to be remote regardless uh, but yeah as we as we all as we all sit in our remote offices to keep it moving rj says are there any daily practices or habits you all recommend for remote work i like the flexibility but it's two-sided i can work from anywhere but that means i can also always be working do you have any any good tips that you've developed over the years yeah, number one, if you have uh family that's always at home, you might need to still get an office, right? Like mm. r- rent a space or something. I think we talked about this last time, but it, it's 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 hard. Your family can intellectually know that you're working, but it can be hard to sort of for that for that to land. And so I actually ended up having to do that, uh, where I actually had another place where I would go work because it was too difficult to be at home all the time when people were in and out. And it was just, it was a, it was just a breeding for sort of frustration, at least for yeah. me. Cause I, when I'm writing, I get in the zone and I need, and I'm locked in and I'm like catatonic the whole time. And if I get knocked out of the zone, it takes me a long time to get back into it. And so like, I, it just wasn't good for anyone led to fights, et cetera. So that might be something that you need to do. Uh, 
I do think having like real clear lines and boundaries or like it's just a matter of self-control. I mean, that's the tough thing. Remote work's great if you're really good at managing your time and having clear boundaries around what you do and when you're working and when you're not. Uh, if that's something that you struggle with, then there's a lot of value in going to the office and having de facto lines and boundaries on your day. I mean, that's the other thing. Like I always start the day at 8 a.m. Like, and it helps because I have kids in school. I walk the kids to school. I walk the dog. I come back and I start my day. And, mm -hmm. you know, the way I do it is Mondays through Wednesdays, it's generally understood I'm around, but I'm not available because I might go on writing. I might do X, Y, Z. Thursdays, because I usually post the interview, I work on the day, but I'm usually done by like five or six. And then on the weekend, I, you know, I, Friday I do office work, but then the weekend I don't do anything. Like I'm, I'm fully available to family. I drive the kids to sporting games. I do X, Y, Z. That's in, you know, my wife and I have this arrangement where she knows like she's on call really the first half of the week and I got yep. it on the weekend. Uh, but so that stuff you just sort of develop over time. I think it it's particular to every circumstance, but you need to respect yourself as an employee and know like being home with kids, like people who say that I want to be home so I can be with kids. It's like, do you like not sure it's a great recipe for being a phenomenal employee, <laughs> just to be honest. And I'm not saying you need to give yourself to work. What you do need though is clear lines where there's a portion of your time you can be fully devoted. Because it's tough to do two things at the same time. And so I think clear boundaries, by and large, is is my answer. Well, and I, I just want to say, as an employee of yours, you've been great from day one about the asynchronous aspects of this arrangement. I remember, because <laughs> what I do and what my recommendation to RJ would be is I've always found it useful to put my phone on airplane mode for an hour or two when I need to be human and like show up and be present with my wife or other family members or friends. Uh, and I remember early on, I like apologized to you for missing a text message and you were like, don't apologize. And literally, I think that's the only time you've like been stern and was like, that's not how we do things. Um, because of the asynchronous, you know, emphasis and it makes it much easier because it does allow you to sort of have a couple hours here and there. Um, and that's where and hybrid I, work, I think, can go sideways because you end up with an expectation because in the office, it's not asynchronous. It's it's synchronous. That's the whole all. benefit, right? And so yeah. you, you, you're actually putting your employees in a tough situation where homework – one of the advantages of working at home is you can have a long period of time in your own office, not in an open office plan where you can really focus. So I think for certain jobs like writing or programming or things like that, there's really real efficiency gains to be had here. I think this idea that at home is inherently less efficient is not true, and it's definitely not true for, for roles that require deep focus for long periods of time. But mm -hmm. as part of that, you, like, you have to put in the processes and the expectations that make that work. And yeah, a asynchronous for, for us is super important. I mean, I'm in a different time zone on the other side of the world. So that's particularly important for me. Like, look, I'm deaf. I'm not going to get back to you in a, in, like immediately. You just have to be <laughs> used to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. This is just boundaries in life are important, period. Whether you're in the office or out of the office. And it's, that's just something you learn with time and experience and learning to respect yourself. Um, yeah. But it goes both ways. If you want your own time, you want your own boundaries, then you should also carve out time where you can actually give your full talent and ability so you can do great work. Yeah, well, and the reason I was laughing about boundaries as you were ex explaining it earlier, I, like I, it's embarrassing, but I need to put my phone in a completely different room when I'm trying to get something done that requires like deep focus. Um, and I would also recommend exercise 30 minutes a day. That's helped me a lot. Uh, but for now, let's keep it moving, Ben. We've got a note here from Kevin. He says, regarding last week's email about monopolies producing useful technology, Dr. Knott at Washington University has done a bunch of relevant research on this. As I recall, she found that to be the case because monopolies have done an unusually large fraction of the, quote, basic research by private companies. The returns to basic research tend to be very high, but take a long time to materialize. And most private companies prefer research that pays off more quickly. I think you can argue that this calls for more government funding of basic research as opposed to more lax antitrust enforcement. Um, very helpful note from Kevin there. I, I'm not even sure last week's emailer was affirmatively arguing that monopolies are good because they yield innovation. 
I, he was mainly just pointing out some under-discussed I- examples of that phenomenon. Uh, and the, it was all worth it to me for the Bell Lab story, which I was not aware of before we recorded. Yeah, I think I've pretty sure, I, I mean, this is, you know, 10 years of articles, they all run together. I think I've made, or at least put forward this argument that this might be the case because one of the challenges you have with aggregators with these companies like like a Google where their power derives from customers going to them as opposed to them like controlling the pipes or whatever like a traditional monopoly is mm-hmm. there's no real regulatory solution to that right you see this in the EU where they keep well, hey put up a choice screen about which browser you're going to use everyone chooses Google right like like or whatever <laughs> it might be and so uh, but I think a potential solution to this And again, I'm not sure how it would work, but this idea that, hey, Google spending a bunch of money on like stupid stuff, maybe that's a good thing. But the answer is how do you get that into the broader domain, right? The key thing about the Bell Labs bit was they they were forced to uh, release their patents on all this sort of stuff. And so I think there is something to this, to be honest. I mean – one of the problems with this basic research is you don't ha- because you don't have the profit focus and you don't have the market focus is you tend to get a lot of waste and kind of lazy mm. sort of stuff and like that's th- but the whole point is like well it's basic research right um my sense though is a private company without incentives is still probably better than the government um in some in some regards uh <laughs> you know call me cynical but I, I'm open to this idea, particularly when it comes to things like aggregators that naturally accrue very large market power and don't have obvious sort of solutions, that something along these lines where – but again, I don't know how you would do this in law, but that there be some sort of expectation that um, if you're over a certain market size, if, you, if you're determined to have this sort of structure, that there has to be much more opening of your patents and your, and your, ah. uh, and your technology – and just like that's sort of a requirement because the whole reason they're powerful is not because of their tech. They're powerful because they have this large audience. And so, I mean, and you see this in large part, like Facebook has built up this entire ecosystem around open networking. And why did they do that? Because Google had their own private networking and they, and they wanted to have as good of networking as Google, but they were a much smaller company at the time. Like, so they basically got the entire industry to work together. And that's now the dominant form of networking. And it's been a a big benefit to everyone. Like it's all open source software running on commodity hardware for all this networking sort of stuff that like, there's actually a good incentive and it makes sense in the business model for these companies to open up their technology anyway. So, I mean, again, I don't know how this would look like, but like everything has to be open source (laughs) and available. If you're, you know, a massive aggregator or something along those lines, I think is directionally, in the right place for how we can reap the maximum societal benefit. I mean, maybe it's something like, yeah, if, if you have over, the problem is defined by the US market, so, but if you have over 150 million active users, you can't, like, all your patents are open source. Like, something along those lines. Like, I, I, I don't well, know. That's exactly, I, I just think in general, there should be a framework where we look at, like, the handful of companies that these rules are really about and use the size of their user base or maybe revenue or whatever you want to choose to just reflect that really we're concerned about four or five companies. And in this case, it's not even concern. It's just saying you guys are doing a lot of useful research that could be very beneficial. Yeah, and some of the work that they're doing right, would be really useful for smaller companies. Right. I mean, like, like right. all the stuff that Apple's if you're done, a startup. Yeah. And could, could do something now. We do as part of this, you would have to fix the patent system where the reason these companies accumulate these huge patent war chests is for countersuits. So when when the small company comes along and wants to get a piece, you know, a chunk of flesh, you know, I personally would get rid of software patents completely. Um, you know, there is but there's a lot, you know, there's a it's a very uh it's a very fraught area that people have strong I was opinions say about. Fraught. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, I think the, we have a few sort of pegs in the stool here. That could pegs in a stool, uh, legs of a stool that that I think <laughs> makes a much smarter approach to spurring innovation while acknowledging the reality of the way the world works. That second mm-hmm. part, acknowledging the reality of the world works, is completely lacking in I think most uh, antitrust you know crusaders. All right, Nick says it's not a Christmas party without some chip talk. Will five nanometer chips eventually be used in less advanced cases like cars and appliances? If so, will TSMC continue to update the U.S. fabs to produce leading-edge chips, or will they continue to produce 5 nanometer as those chips move down the chain? On the other hand, will the recent trade restrictions impact China's ability to keep producing a high volume of chips 
approximately 10 years behind the leading edge. Will China be able to produce chips on par with the capacity currently being installed in Arizona 10 years from now? Thanks. Looking forward to another year of listening to you guys talk. Uh, What do you think, Ben? So the way TSMC has always operated is they build a fab and they weave that fab as it is. And so once they build a five nanometer fab, that fab is making five nanometer chips forever. And that's how they make money in the long run because they, you know, once it's fully depreciated, it's still churning out chips. Now the price of those chips goes down, but it's basically 100% profit for every sort of chip Mm -hmm. that goes out. And so these, so that said, I don't know about the Arizona ones. If it, if I'm right, where these are really for AMD and Apple and NVIDIA, and that's basically it, maybe it'll be more like the Intel model where they do sort of keep updating them over time to be sort of not, it's not leading edge per se, because that needs to be done in Taiwan where all their, their engineers are, but it's still relatively, relatively cutting edge. So I, I don't know. That's an open question. I'm very in- interested to see how TSMC is going to handle this because they're on the leading edge. Now they can charge way higher prices than they ever could for new chips coming out of these fabs. So they make right. money. When I talk about them, that's how they traditionally made money was on the back end. Now they make money in the front end and the back end. So uh, I don't know. I, I think that would make sense, but we'll see. Um, number two, yes, in 30, 40 years, these chips will be used in cars and appliances in large part because that's just what's going to be available, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of the, I think a lot of car companies, you know, they've been back like 90 nanometer or even higher for a lot of their stuff. There's there's a huge node at 28 nanometers. So TSMC has a bunch. That's where China's really building a ton of capacity. So 28 nanometer chips are going to be more widely available and cheaper, but it's a long process to get a chip certified, get it all these XYZ. And so new things being developed today will be built on more modern sort of architectures, and then they'll be produced for 15 years or 20 years. So yeah, that will happen. It'll just happen in in sort of the very, very long run. By and large, for a car company, it's not worth the effort to redesign a chip that works perfectly fine uh, when this sort of stuff's going on. Will the recent restrictions impact China's ability to keep producing high volume chips in years behind the edge? No, because I think China will figure out how to make these chips probably on their own. But also, the U.S. companies are able to service these fabs. Like there's no restriction on U.S. companies delivering and servicing equipment to 28 nanometer fabs. Like, and that was part mm. of the goal of the restrictions was not to completely cut off U.S. Let's equipment not suppliers. kneecap our economy as we take. Well, these not just that, but let's also steps. let's also not create a market for competitors for our companies that are basically monopolies, mm. right? And so that's yep. th- that that whereas you know because a Japanese company could probably. Uh, there is in, uh, sufficient knowledge in the Japanese, in Japan in particular, to make a lot of these machines, right? It used to be that both countries made all these machines. The U.S. used to make lithography. Like, and so there's latent knowledge that is much more advanced than what's necessarily in China. And so the real risk here isn't just that y- your companies lose revenue, but actually you spur new competitors that – it, again, in these markets where you, you, your U.S. companies basically have monopolies. So that, that's that's definitely a concern that they're trying to limit. Will China be able to produce chips on part of the capacity currently being installed in China 10 years? Uh, no, probably not. Mm. The five nanometer chips need uh, EUV, which no one in the world can make except for ASML that has this massive supply chain of all these companies, Some many of which are the U.S. Now, there is news that the Netherlands and Japan are on board with, with supporting these restrictions. Yes. ASML is a Dutch company for anyone who doesn't know or hasn't listened to Sharp Tech the last three months. I think the potential hole here will be Germany. Uh, Germany has traditionally uh, not gone along necessarily with U.S. trade restrictions on China. Has seen that as an opportunity to fill. And some of the core components of uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography, like the mirrors and some of the lasers, uh, the light source is from the U.S., but the rest of the laser is is uh, a German company called called Drumpf. Uh and then uh and then Great. the the mirrors are made by um Zeiss and uh Siemens I think is also a big supplier of ASML so it's it's possible that China is making EUV their own EUV machines in 10 years or theoretically again maybe a jet like Canon or Nikon theoretically could but I think it's pretty unlikely uh the big concern here is and I, China, I think, is very smartly focusing on the trailing edge. They're building up tons and tons of capacity at 28 nanometers, all these older chips, which they can make. And what they can do is they can flood the market. They can drive down prices. They could potentially drive 
TSMC out of the market. They could probably bankrupt Global Foundries because Global Foundries is basically a trailing edge company now. And then Mm. we end up in a situation where, sure, we control all the leading edge chips, but the vast majority of chips that are using the vast majority of things, like if you thought the auto industry had a bad during COVID, we're probably going to end up in a situation a few years where the auto industry is completely dependent on Chinese chips. Yeah. And no one's thinking about this or paying attention to it. <laughs> well, we, we've been paying close attention to it. And I appreciated Nick's question here because it was one follow-up question I had after we finished recording the first of two TSMC segments is like, how quickly does five nanometer become trailing edge as opposed to leading edge? And it sounds like the the timeline there is actually fairly broad. Like it's going to be 20 or 30 years before those are serving the same purposes as like a 28 nanometer. I think there's still a fair bit of unknowns here too. Around 14 nanometers, uh, chips started becoming more expensive as they got smaller. For a long time, the smaller chip got, the cheaper it got because you could you could fit more onto a, fit more onto wafer. But what EUV in particular is so expensive and it's expensive to buy the equipment. It's expensive to operate. Like the power requirements are astronomical to to general you know to to run these machines. And it, there's a real question as how many industries are just going to stop at 28 nanometers. Basically, like 28 nanometers is this massive, massive node. TSMC makes a ton of money on, on 20 nanometers. They actually are building two new 28 nanometer fabs in Japan. That's basically mm-hmm. dedicated for the Japanese auto industry, and I think for for maybe Sony also. Um, the fate of all these five nanometer fabs is actually kind of interesting. Um, TSMC slowed down their build out of like extra fabs at the at these sort of cutting edges uh, because I, I think it's it, it's a question. Yes, yeah, smartphones need it, uh, servers need it, GPUs right. need it. How many other folks actually need this level of performance? And and so m- maybe there ends up being a gap where there's fourteen or twenty eight. Like Intel has a lot of fourteen nanometers, so they're hoping that becomes an important node. But Intel could be stuck in sort of no man's land as well. Uh, so it's unclear how that's going to develop. Well, we will continue to monitor all developments in that space. Um, Iwu asks, does the bill to ban TikTok have legs? I'm just going to use that question as occasion to recommend a recent New York Times Magazine article on TikTok. It's a comprehensive look at how they expanded in the U.S. and why it's so controversial. Now, I'm sticking with my take that TikTok will be banned by the end of 2023 in this country. We'll see how it happens, um, but who knows? Uh, And final question here. Daniel says, as a fellow long-suffering Wizards fan, does Andrew believe that ChatGPT or some other form of AI could run the Wizards better than the current management and finally bring a title to Washington, D.C. Ben, do you have any uh, preliminary thoughts here? No, I'm eagerly awaiting your answer. Okay, so here's the thing. I I have asked basketball questions to chat GPT, and there have been a bunch of cases where chat GPT refuses to take a position on like the best player in the NBA or best NBA player of all time. So if we're handing the car keys to Sam Altman, we would definitely need to crank up like the confidence meter on chat GPT or nothing would ever get done in a GM context. But beyond that, we are talking about an unbelievably low bar here in Washington, DC. <laughs> and, and I'm pretty confident that chat GPT could clear that bar. The wizards, they gave $250 million to Bradley Beal over the summer, even though there was no competition to sign him. They handed him a no trade clause, which is something that teams haven't been handing out for like the past 20 years. The stupidest, the stupidest NBA contract clause in history. It's pretty bad. I was subjected to a lot of bullying. I went to Vegas Summer League immediately after they signed that Beal contract and endured like 96 hours of jokes about the no trade clause. They drafted Johnny Davis from your Wisconsin Badgers. Hey, I take no responsibility. <laughs> no, you were relaying Wisconsin Wisconsin fans on draft night who were like talking up Johnny Davis. And so that gave me a little bit of hope. Those no, 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 have- no. The, 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 the response was, look, he was terrible. Resp- what I was telling you was he was terrible his freshman year and kind of came out of nowhere as a sophomore. So maybe the fact he's terrible in summer league means that uh, maybe he will come out <laughs> of nowhere. Uh, 
turns out if you can't get good separation at the college level, it might not be great for your oh NBA prospects. But um, like, do yeah. we have scouts? What the hell is happening? So, all right, all of this is to say we haven't drafted a successful rookie in like ten years, um, and of the last five, we've blown like lottery pick after lottery pick. If you can give me a computer program that can hoover up information and statistics and just take a, a guess at what the best moves are, I it can't possibly be worse than what the Wizards have had over the last five to ten years. So um, I wholeheartedly agree that ChatGPT is something the Wizards should explore. Well, there you go. AI's taking over the world, taking over DC. There you go. Maybe could, taking it, over the NBA. And maybe that's why we'll win. It can't be worse than what we have now. Well, well, well. All right. We've got a lot more nonsense planned for the second episode here. That's going to be subscriber only. So if you're listening to this on a free feed, you can subscribe with the links in your show notes. And um, I look forward to keeping the holiday hoopla going with you, Ben. Uh, well, well, I'll say Merry Christmas now and say Happy Holidays for part two. Okay. Okay.